So we're going to go ahead and continue our series that we started last week called The Unexpected Ramifications of the King's Authority. If you remember last week, we looked at four vignettes of Jesus healing people and showing that he had the authority over illness to make them well, but also to make them acceptable in their community and that he can still make us acceptable today. Today's message is called The One Where Jesus Doesn't Panic. It's number two in our series. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the time when Jesus had the chance to panic, but he didn't, and how that shows his authority. Uh, you all know what panic is, right? You've seen that before, people panic. Uh, the best illustration I've ever seen of panicking, at least in the cinema, was in Harry Potter's first movie, the movie where Professor Quirrell, the very shy, stuttering professor, suddenly runs into the common room screaming at the top of his lungs, troll, there's a troll in the dungeon. And as he runs to the center of the common room, all the students' attention focuses right on Professor Quirrell until he gets to the middle and he stops suddenly and he just very calmly says, thought you ought to know. And then he collapses. And for just a moment there, the students, all of them, just relax. They are just, just stunned. They don't know how to react to that. They, they just completely blindsided until one of them reacts. And when one of them panics, they all panic until there's pandemonium in the room, to the point where Professor Dumbledore, the headmaster, stands up and yells at them, Silence! And they all stop, and look, and listen, and receive instruction, and walk out very calmly, very composed. And I think this is a really good illustration of how what we focus on influences our actions. There's a lot of things in our culture today that are contending for our focus, aren't there? I mean, in the media today, you hear a great deal about the coronavirus and should we wear masks and shouldn't we wear masks? Should we start school? Should we not start school? Should we open our states up, open our economies up? Do we tell people they can't leave their homes? There's a great deal of discussion on the coronavirus and a great deal of focus on it, especially in the media. But there's other media issues that focus for our attention as well. Uh, many of us are following the stories of violence in the bigger cities in our community, in our country. That's our news media. But when you say media to a younger crowd, you don't automatically think news media. You think social media. And again, that is focusing a great deal on some of the same issues. Trying to get our attention, trying to keep us focused on it instead of perhaps something else. At this time of year, often we focus on the elections because politics is a big deal that strives for our focus. And so does the economy. Is the economy going up? Is the economy going down? Are we going to have enough money to retire? Do we need to save more money? Is this business going to thrive? Is that business going to fail? Are all questions that involve the economy that strives for our focus and, of course, since we live in Oklahoma, there's always the weather. You never speak to anybody for very long, stranger or friend, before you end up eventually saying, is it hot enough for you today? But 
there's a bigger issues in the weather that strive for our focus too. If you follow the Weather Channel app on your cell phone like I do, you're inundated with the climate change issue. And are we going to even survive past 2050? Or are we all going to be roasted alive because the climate is changing so much? And they're all striving to keep you focused on them. So who should we focus on? Where should our attention be? It's an interesting question. Because as we answer that question, we need to realize that the one we focus on is the one who controls our behavior. Now, we tried to teach that to the kids in Vacation Bible School this last week. We were talking about the armor of God, and I tried to explain to them that the Christian has three primary enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the, essentially, for kids, it's peer pressure. For adults, it's peer pressure and advertising. You know, I never knew I needed a new computer until they advertised it. Striving for your attention. The flesh is essentially the same way. I told the kids that the flesh is that those things that we do to make our body feel good. Drugs, um, sometimes it's overeating, sometimes it's a lack of exercise. It's the things we do to keep our bodies comfortable. Sometimes that's a over-focus that we have. And then, of course, there's the devil. That's not quite as prevalent in the United States, although I do believe the devil works through both the world and the flesh to keep our attention off of the things of God. If you go to other parts of the world, he's more prevalent. He's more likely to be seen in those parts of the world. <coughs> in those parts of the world where animism or spiritism is more prevalent, you're more likely to see an overt activity from demons. But for the Christian, there's a fourth option. And the fourth option is Jesus. And that's where we are in our passage today as we get to Matthew chapter 8, verse 32, the one that was read for us just a little bit ago. Uh, in order to understand that, though, we need to go back just a few verses, back to verse 18, and see that Jesus is trying to leave Capernaum. That's his base of operation. It's where his home is. It's where he keeps coming back to. And he's trying to leave. He's going someplace specific for a ministry project of some kind. Matthew hasn't told us yet what that is, but he's going to do some ministry somewhere and a couple of people are trying to stop him. One of them is a scribe. The scribe is saying, oh, let me go with you. And the idea is Jesus is a rising star and the scribe thinks that he's going to hitch his wagon to Jesus. And Jesus explains to him that that's not a good idea because even, you know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. In other words, I'm not getting rich doing this, and you probably won't either. The second person who tries to stop Jesus is already one of his disciples. And that person says to Jesus, um, let me first bury my mother and my father before we go on this mission. And as he uh, says this, we say to ourselves, well, that's an honorable thing to do. We should honor our parents. We should see that they get a decent funeral. The problem is, in their culture, mom and dad may not be dead yet when you say that. It's really actually a way of saying, or in, in the vein of saying, why don't we wait till mom and dad die before you go on these trips? Because then I can go with you and I can help you and I might even have some financial resources to contribute. So you stay here in Capernaum until these things happen and then we'll go on these trips. Jesus doesn't bite. 
Jesus looks at the young man or old man, whatever he was, the disciple, and says, let the dead bury their own dead. And in essence, I don't really care what you do. I'm going on my trip. And so he gets into the boat. And as we look at the picture here on this slide, we can see a boat that the 12, 12 of the disciples are getting into. And uh, I couldn't find a better picture, but that picture is not very realistic. We know from archaeology that that particular boat is way too small. Uh, we know from uh, talking to people who know about boating that that boat won't survive. We read in Matthew's Gospel, we see that he's going to be passing the entire length of the Sea of Galilee, probably passing right through the middle of that Sea of Galilee. And this little boat would probably um, sink somewhere before it got anywhere near the middle. It's just not seaworthy for that deep water. We've found, uh, in archaeology, we've found boats that were fishermen's boats about that same time. And uh, they were quite a bit bigger than this, maybe four or even five times bigger than this. And in the back end, there may be a raised platform where a person could get above the water a little bit and be able to see where the fish are underneath the water. And so there's quite a bit different boat than what's in that picture, but it's the only picture that I could find where the disciples are getting into the boat. But Matthew tells us that as soon as they got in the boat and they set sail, almost right away, there was a storm. And we in Oklahoma, knowing thunderstorms and how they happen, we think to ourselves, why on earth did they get in the boats to start with if they knew a storm was coming? Because in Oklahoma, you can usually see on the horizon signs that a storm is coming. But this particular storm wasn't like that. In the Sea of Galilee, the geog geography is kind of unique. You look at this topographical map here, and you can see that north of the sea, where the Jordan River flows down from the north, uh, it's surrounded by mountains, and some of those mountains are 9,000 feet high. And as a weather front would come down from the north, those mountains would compress that air. As you can see on the picture there, there's a kind of a funnel shape, and it would compress that air and shoot it out across the lake at tremendous speeds, gale force winds. Um, some people have even used the term hurricane to describe one of these wind storms that comes down from the north through the Jordan River Valley there, and it gets compressed. The thing is that this can hit in seconds, and there's not a cloud in the sky, there's no rain, there's no warning, just this sudden, terrible windstorm coming down from the north across this lake. Anyway, the waves are so bad that the boat is filling up with water. Uh, this boat may be five feet above the water, the edge of the boat, and the water is coming in. It tells you a little bit about how big some of the waves would have been. And it's coming so quickly that it's actually filling the boat up to the point where they're afraid they're going to sink the boat. And where's Jesus during all of this? Jesus is in the back of the boat taking a nap. He's sleeping underneath that raised platform in the back, trying to get a little rest, preparing for the ministry that he's sailing to do. And so these fishermen who have grown up on the Sea of Galilee know that this is a terrible situation that they're in. One commentator said that this was perhaps the one thing that scared a Galilean fisherman the most was this Storm, this wind storm coming down through that rift, that valley that compressed all that air and made this terrible wind. 
So they go to do what we probably would have done. They went to make an appeal to Jesus. They woke him up and they said to him, save us. We are perishing. And that's an easy thing for us to read in a calm voice. But probably they didn't say it in a calm voice because the phrase we are perishing means Jesus, we're dying right now. We are in the process of becoming dead. We need something right now. Picture the Hogwarts great room when the kids panicked. Help us now. And Jesus gives an interesting reply because he does not respond to the emotion that the disciples are displaying. He says in verse 26, he says, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Why are you freaking out about this? Yeah, there's a windstorm. Yeah, there's a little water. Nothing bad's going to happen. Why are you so afraid that something bad's going to happen? And then he says that phrase that none of us want to hear, oh, you of little faith. But the interesting thing about that is in, in Greek, that's one word. It's one word that is not just any word, it's a pronounal adjective. And we know from our grade school grammar that an adjective is any word that describes something about another thing or a person. If I said, look at that tall man, the word tall is an adjective. It describes something about the man. If I say, look at the little child, the word little is an adjective. It describes something about the child. So this word is an adjective that says something descriptive about the people being talked about, but it's also a pronoun. And a pronoun is a replacement for a noun. If I say he, that's a replacement for the word Tom. So when you put those together and you get a pronounal adjective, grammatically what, you, what Jesus has done is created for these men, these disciples, a brand new nickname. And it kind of reminds me of a MASH episode I saw as a kid where Hawkeye Pierce was walking in his sleep and he's playing basketball with, with Radar O'Reilly and he throws the ball to him and says, catch, stinky, and... Radar misses the ball and looks back at Hawkeye and says, don't call me that. Nicknames like that stick. And a nickname like Little Faith sticks. And so Jesus gets up, and I can imagine him as he gets up off of his, whatever he was sleeping on there, the floor or a pad or something, he gets up with a smile on his face because basically he just made it funny. And so he looks around and he speaks to the wind and the sea and he rebukes them. And at that point, a sea that was so horribly rough that it scared professional fishermen to death, literally made them believe they were about to perish, suddenly became absolutely calm. And the men responded with marvel, amazement, because they were aware, as uh, I read in the Moody Bible commentary, that when these windstorms stop, sometimes those waves still continue on for up to 48 hours because the water doesn't just stop because the wind does. And they were amazed that it was so absolutely calm that they asked themselves a question. Notice they didn't ask Jesus, but they asked each other the question, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Now from the 21st century, we look back at this and we think to ourselves, Surely they could have responded better than that. What, what, what might they have done differently? And I want to be very careful 
not to criticize these men because because I didn't live through it. I did not have to go through this scary, traumatic event. But it's still a question that we can ask because it will help us to move forward in our beliefs in Jesus Christ and to grow and become more faithful to him. And if I were going to answer the question, what they might have done differently, what they might have done better, my first response would be to trust God that he would take care of them. The logic is fairly easy to follow, really. Uh, we know from the beginning that Jesus had things to do. He's on his way to do ministry. And looking back from hindsight, from our perspective, Jesus had a lot left to do. He still had all of his Galilean ministry. He still had to go to Jerusalem several times. He had to go to Jerusalem the last time. He had to die on the cross, and he had to rise again. He had to ascend to heaven. There were many things he still had to do on this earth. Without Jesus being here, none of that stuff could be done. And since Jesus was necessary for God's plan, clearly God wouldn't let him die. So, as long as Jesus is in your boat, and Jesus isn't going to die, you're going to end up okay. So, what do we learn from that line of logic, from this story about Jesus in the boat and his authority over the seas? Well, the first thing we learn is that if Jesus is calm, we should be too. If Jesus is not freaking out, then we should relax. And we can ask ourselves as we face our 21st century struggles, what about this particular incident is freaking Jesus out? What about the virus? Has Jesus losing sleep? What is it about the media and the reporting on the violence and other things that has Jesus wringing his hands wondering what's going to happen next? What is it about politics and the election that has Jesus wondering, how am I going to deal with this? Is there anything about our economy that has Jesus worried? And even the weather, a common concern and anxiety in Oklahoma. Is there anything about the weather that has Jesus wondering whether he can deal with it? Jesus has the authority to deal with any of these issues. Jesus has the authority to decide how to deal with any of these issues. And Jesus will exercise that authority to deal with those issues. And as long as we're looking at Jesus and remembering his authority, that's going to control our behavior. But as long as we look at the issue itself, that too is going to control our behavior. And this is reassuring in a way when we think about it. Because if we look at Jesus and respond to him instead of the stress, then we're going to get a better nickname. I mean, he called the disciples in the boat little faiths. But later, Matthew, he introduces another nickname that we can still earn. The nickname good and faithful servant. Not only will we get a better 
reputation, a better nickname to go with this, but uh, we're going to also get a reputation among other people of being independent in our reactions. People are going to see us as someone who does not overreact or radically react to the latest stress in the world. And we won't freak out just because the rest of the world is. And eventually we're going to see our kids and our grandkids looking at us and saying, in the past, they've reacted wisely to every stress that has come up. I'm going to see what they have to say before I react at all. Because you see, when we react to the king's authority by focusing on him and letting that control our response to the stress in life, we're going to live at peace. We're going to live with that peace that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that's a good way to respond to Jesus' authority. 